0: Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is licensed clinical psychologist, Tracy Stein. Dr. Stein has a master's and doctorate degree in clinical psychology from Columbia University and is the former director of integrative medicine in the Department of Surgery at Columbia University Medical Center. Her work as an expert in integrative medicine has been featured widely from O Magazine to Psychology Today. Currently, Dr. Stein runs a clinical health psychology practice for people struggling with chronic pain, and she's here today on Health Watch to talk about her book, The Everything Guide to Integrative Pain Management, Conventional and Alternative Therapies for Managing Pain. Welcome to Health Watch, Dr. Tracy Stein.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So, Dr. Stein, in your book, you state that about one-third of the United States experiences ongoing pain. And the management of that seems like we're at, sort of at a place of a, a conundrum of sorts since we're learning a lot of the long-term uh, downsides, say opioid addiction or even elevated cardiovascular risk from taking over-the-counter drugs like ibuprofen when managing things long-term. So, But before we talk about some of the alternative therapies that you suggest in concert uh, with some of the conventional therapies, maybe we should start with risk factors. Wh- what are some of the risk factors that... Um, put people at a higher risk of developing chronic pain?
1: So that's a great question, and certainly it varies person to person, but things that we know contribute to chronic pain risk would be um, being overweight, um, being underweight, actually, um, smoking, being sedentary, and um, having high levels of inflammation. Also, if you think about it today, people work much longer hours than they used to, often two or three jobs to make ends meet. Their stress levels tend to be pretty high. Social support can actually be lower. People can be more isolated these days. And we know that things like depression and anxiety are associated with higher levels of pain. You, for coping.
0: You, you also mentioned in, in the book that uh, being female puts us at higher risk of, of chronic pain, uh, yet yeah, we don't know whether that's a biological thing or a cultural sociological thing. Can you talk a little bit about um, the gender dynamic around yeah. chronic pain?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we do know that women present more for treatment for chronic pain uh, health issues. Certainly, there are some pain issues that are only applicable to females like vulvodynia or endometriosis or um, menstrual pain, but women are also more likely to seek treatment. It's really hard to separate out whether... um, you know, the the fact that women are also much more likely to be diagnosed with depression and anxiety are causal or correlational. Certainly we know that people who have chronic pain also tend to have higher levels of depression and anxiety. There's some speculation that hormonal levels and fluctuations in hormonal levels may be uh, a factor in why women are more likely to have chronic pain, but that hasn't really been proven. And, um, Certainly, the fact that women tend to take on multiple roles. So you'll see women who work and then take care of the home and perhaps a partner and children and maybe even elderly relatives. And the increased stress tends to decrease pain coping and coping in general. So there are a variety of reasons. One problem in understanding why there's this gender difference is because women are often excluded from pain research. So many more studies are done looking at chronic pain in men. Even in animal studies, such as with mice, you'll actually see they're more often done with male mice. And so it it creates kind of a knowledge gap that we really need to close to understand what's going on better.
0: That's really fascinating, and and you mentioned the um, link between anxiety and depression and chronic pain, that it, um, if you have anxiety or depression, you're at higher risk of, of developing ongoing pain, but it's also the reverse, too, that if you have chronic pain, the, um, you have a higher chance of developing depression or anxiety, so that seems like an interesting uh, puzzle that hasn't really been untangled as well.
1: Right. I mean, one of the things that we can take from that, though, that can be a positive is that many of the therapies that are helpful with uh, managing depressive symptoms or managing anxiety are also helpful for managing pain. And there are... um, neurological reasons for this. It's, you know, people think of mind-body therapies as these intangible nebulous things and therefore, you know, maybe not so effective, but they actually can be very effective both for helping with mood issues and anxiety and also with pain.
0: So can we talk a little bit about um, mindfulness-based stress reduction, which... Um, f- f- what I discovered from your book is um, can lead to quite a bit of pain reduction and also better functioning.
1: Right. So mindfulness in and of itself, is actually separate from mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is an actual program at the University of Massachusetts and now elsewhere. That program was developed by John Kabat-Zinn, who uh, used to be on the faculty there. But Mindfulness-based stress reduction includes a yoga component, includes a lot of psychoeducation, and it's a multi-week program, and that's been shown to have a number of benefits for people with different chronic pain conditions. Um, Mindfulness, just the meditative practice, I refer to it as present moment nonjudgmental awareness. And what it does is it it, um, trains us to focus on what is going on in the now. And that's so important because especially in the United States, we tend to be prone to keeping our minds in the past so we may ruminate over something that has not gone well for us, or we may long for the past, especially if we're in pain now and we weren't then, Um, or we'll worry about the future or long for the future, thinking that it'll necessarily be better. And what that does is it takes us out of the moment we're in, and the moment we're in is the only moment where we can ever affect change. With regard to pain, we know that mindfulness practice in the long term Causes changes in the brain, both to the structure and function of the brain, so that people actually have greater pain coping and decrease pain severity. But they also have found that in uh, studies, long-term meditators are actually more resistant to chronic um, to pain in a laboratory setting. So laboratory-induced pain. So there really is a benefit. Um, From a pain perspective to learning mindfulness, but also, again, from a general well-being and and mood perspective, it it tends to address, I I think it's a common ailment that we suffer from as a society that we get so caught up in things that aren't even actually happening and may never happen. And all that does is increase our distress. So mindfulness keeps us in the now.
0: And I would imagine perhaps it's something that people avoid out of the the counterintuitive notion that you'd want to be present with your your present moment when you're in pain, um, being a way towards having less pain, not just coping with your pain, but actually reducing the amount of pain.
1: Right. It is. It is very counterintuitive, and it can be a tough sell at first sometimes for people, but What I explain to patients is that, again, this moment is the only one we will ever have. This is where our life is happening, and this is where we can affect any change. And, you know, mindfulness also could mean attending to a part of the body that is more comfortable or even simply neutral. So a very simple mindfulness exercise could mean identifying an area of the body like an earlobe or your hands or the tip of your nose and observing the experience of that pleasant or neutral sensation in that area, and what that can do is actually edge pain out of the way. It can turn down the volume on pain because what happens is we tend to amplify it by by infusing it with so much emotion. Sitting with and observing pain can also, um, if we're just mindfully attending to the breath and just noticing, okay, there's this or that sensation in my body, can actually help us to um, find spaces between the, the moments of pain. A lot of times people will say, well, my pain is constant and it never changes, but actually mindful awareness of your pain can help you notice when it decreases, not just when it's high and learn to kind of create more space between the uh, pain spikes.
0: In case you just tuned in, we're talking to clinical psychologist Tracy Stein about her book, The Everything Guide to Integrative Pain Management. For people listening, uh, Tracy, about potentially approaching pain from the mind, from psychology, and from awareness when um, they're so used to um, potentially reaching for a, a pain medication, um, therapy itself has also been studied as uh, intervention for pain. Is, is there a specific type of therapy that, um, so psychotherapy, that would be beneficial for someone who's a chronic pain sufferer?
1: Absolutely. So the standard really is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a more structured type of therapy. Sometimes it's time-limited, but oftentimes it can be ongoing. And cognitive behavioral therapy helps us in a lot of different ways. So one way is it helps us, you know, by keeping something like a pain diary, it can show us what things tend to trigger spikes in pain and what things tend to alleviate pain or decrease pain. Because, again, sometimes it will seem like, you know, nothing helps. But then when somebody keeps a pain diary, they might realize that, oh, actually, when um, I went for a walk, my pain, despite thinking it would spike, was actually lower, or taking a 20-minute nap is helpful, but taking an hour nap isn't. Um, Also identifying things like cognitive distortions, so catastrophizing is very common when people are depressed or stressed, but also in chronic, uh, chronic pain. And catastrophizing means taking something that's already negative, but taking it to the nth degree and making it as terrible as possible. And we know from the research that catastrophizing actually increases pain severity and decreases pain coping. So identifying cognitive distortions can help people put things in a more realistic perspective. And um, it also helps them do a reality check. And often what people will find is that, yes, this is unpleasant and I don't like it and I wish it didn't happen to me, but it actually isn't impossible for me to make some of these changes that might help me feel better. Um, Behavioral activation is a commonly used tool in cognitive behavioral therapy, and that simply means engaging in pleasant activities, but scheduling them just like they're as important as any other activity.
0: So in my own practice when i see people with either acute or chronic pain often my first line intervention is acupuncture and i was curious what your own experience in in running pain clinics and and the role or lack thereof of acupuncture
1: I think acupuncture can be very beneficial, and certainly the research probably is strongest for pain management with regard to acupuncture. I also do believe in the chi effect that there is some life force energy that is getting um, balanced by acupuncture. It really depends on the practitioner um, and on the clinic, but I think more and more now the conventional medical community is recognizing that acupuncture is an important uh, treatment tool. And more doctors are becoming trained in medical acupuncture. My, my own feeling is that um, sometimes it's also go, good to go to somebody who has done the four-year training and knows probably even more about acupuncture in Chinese medicine but acupuncture is a wonderful tool and and I think it's worth incorporating in most pain management treatment programs.
0: And with regards to the sort of the wild west of of herbs and supplements, where what are some of the ones that stand out to you as both being potentially safe to use and also with some science behind or some some clinical experience behind them being effective?
1: Okay, so in terms of safety and effectiveness, things like ginger and turmeric, which are spices, um, can potentially help with inflammation and pain, also with digestion issues. Um, you know, magnesium, especially for people who have headaches or insomnia, that can be really calming to the nervous system. Um, omega-3 fatty acid supplementation, whether that's in the form of fish oil or something like krill oil, can decrease inflammation, help with mood issues, and possibly help with pain. Probiotics, I think, Um, it's hard for me to think of a person who wouldn't benefit from using a probiotic given the um, brain-gut Connection and all of the research that's coming out on probiotics for certainly for a number of mental health issues, but also for immune issues, and um, I, I guess unless somebody has something like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or some GI disorder, maybe they would want to speak to their gastroenterologist about you know the timing of and what particular strains of probiotics to take but those I think are ones with pretty good safety profiles. If you're taking any medication or a lot of other supplements, it's certainly worth, and it's actually really important to talk to your physician just to avoid interactions. Um, It's important to get a good quality supplement. So websites like consumerlab.com I think are invaluable. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's an independent laboratory. Okay, great. I don't know if your listeners are, but, um, you know, it's impossible to remember everything that's been researched about Um, an entire body of therapies, or even just one group. And what I like is that they review and summarize the research for different medical conditions. They note when there have been contraindications or adverse effects. And um, they do test a number of supplements, certainly not all of them, and even ones that aren't on their list might still be quite good. But they look to make sure that supplements aren't contaminated and also that they contain what they say they do and only what they say they do.
0: And it might be worth noting also that, say, a substance like turmeric, uh, dosage is going to be important. While t- eating it in your food is going to be health-promoting, it may not be a, a pain-relieving amount of turmeric to right. be able to reduce inflammation and joint pain or or head trauma recovery, which is one of the things that's been studied for in animals.
1: Absolutely. And, and I guess similarly um, with omega-3 fatty acids, eating fish a few times a week is great for somebody who can do that and, and is willing to do that. Um, the the thing with fish oil, as you know, is that if somebody's taking blood thinners, they really don't want to necessarily go out and automatically take fish oil or garlic or things like that that tend to decrease clotting, especially not without talking to their doctor.
0: So what are your thoughts, pro or, pro or con or both, on uh, med- medical marijuana and, and pain management?
1: So I had a feeling you were going to ask me about that. And, you know, I certainly don't consider myself an expert on medical marijuana. I consider myself like an expert generalist. But... Uh, I think there are certainly benefits for some people to medical marijuana, including somebody who's ha- who has seizures, or who has poor appetite, or trouble sleeping. Um, a friend of mine passed away a few years ago at the age of 40 from a metastatic cancer, and medical marijuana was one of the things that really improved her quality of life. And, um, you know, she had to get it illegally at the time. and. Um, it was worth. It. The risks were worth it to her, of of doing that illegally, so that she could get the benefits, and they were really important to her. So, you know, certainly, I think that the risk to most people is probably lower than for opioids. I'm I'm, I'm hedging that just because I know that no matter what I say, somebody will be upset by that comment, but. Um, It can be helpful. I think if somebody has a personal or family history of psychotic illness, it's probably not the first thing that I would recommend. And somebody, you know, even or people with migraines or some other neurologic issue would probably want to stay in close contact with their doctors, which I recommend anyway. Um, But I'm I'm interested to see more research come out on medical marijuana. I think it could be very promising.
0: Well, you mentioned, as far as possible, supplement interventions, probiotics, which I'm guessing you're not recommending with regards to direct pain relief, but more for uh, system balancing to eventually lead to better pain management. But correct me if I'm wrong. But it made me think that you would also probably have some thoughts on Ways to manage one's diet with regards to having a diet that's reducing inflammation or potentially removing things that could be triggering uh, inflammation in specific places.
1: Absolutely. Um, just with regards to probiotics and chronic pain, I'm not aware of any data showing a direct relationship between probiotics and pain perception. Um, it would be interesting to see something like that. But that said, you know, there's all these. Brain areas, you know, people can. um, A common misconception is that people think there's one kind of pain center, and as we know, there are multiple areas of the brain involved in the experience of pain, and there's a lot of overlap between those areas and areas related to cognitive functioning and, and and emotion and depression and anxiety, and that's one reason why we sometimes recommend antidepressants and other psychotropics. Both for pain and for mood issues, but probiotics we know help with um, pain with I'm sorry with mood issues, and even there's some data on schizophrenia symptoms um, responding to probiotics and dietary change. So I think um, before we go on
0: before we go on to diet though, um, you mentioned this link between pain and depression, and that sometimes antidepressants are used uh, to help people with pain, not just for mood. Are there alternative therapies that you think of that are both addressing pain and depression at the same time?
1: Well, certainly cognitive behavioral therapy, um, you know, anything like mindfulness that helps one be in the present moment. Hypnosis actually can be quite helpful for alleviating especially anxiety symptoms and helping reframe kind of depressogenic thinking and um, and helping decrease pain severity perception. So that would be something I would think of. Um, you know, there's the supplement SAMI, which is s methionine, and there's some data showing that it's helpful for osteoarthritis pain and other types of health issues as well as for depression. And sometimes it's used um, adjunctively with antidepressants to help people who don't respond to antidepressants alone. So I think there are a lot of therapies that work on both pain and mood.
0: Sorry to der- derail you no, about about the diet, but um, if you have some thoughts on where people could begin um, to sort of parse out what would be a, a diet that is um, not contributing to uh, inflammation and pain.
1: So I'll probably say what I'm assuming you and many of your guests have said, but um, you know a. A whole foods, unrefined diet, heavy on the vegetables and fruit, maybe some fatty fish. These are types of things that reduce inflammation. I know people are split with regard to whether grains are beneficial. I personally eat them. Um, but, you know, not overdoing that and not eating ones that are refined. Looking for things like emulsifiers and packaged food and just avoiding them, avoiding trans fats. Um, Both of those can contribute to inflammation, and there's no nutritional value to them. Uh, A whole foods, unrefined-as-possible diet, um, watching or avoiding alcohol, watching or avoiding caffeine, these things can help people um, feel better in general and also get weight under control if that's an issue, whether the weight is too low or too high. So that's typically what I would recommend, and maybe adding some fermented foods um, like kimchi or sauerkraut for people who enjoy them.
0: And then with regards to starting an exercise program, that seems to be a particularly complicated thing uh, if people are experiencing pain when they're moving. Um, How do you go about that, and are there uh, specific forms of exercise that go with specific conditions that you would want to highlight?
1: Exercise is important for everybody, as you know. The problem is like you like you um, suggested that when people are in pain, they really don 't want to move and the problem with that is their muscles continue to tighten or atrophy they can um, have disc issues from inactivity, but it is really challenging once someone is already in pain to get them moving, but especially for people who weren't active before. um, Exercises that tend to be helpful and and more doable would be gentle movement like Tai Chi, which also helps reduce the risk of falls in people who are prone to them and improves balance, Um, Qigong gentle yoga, not necessarily the athletic vigorous yoga you might see at like a celebrity gym or a trendy gym, but something more restorative at first, um, walking at whatever pace somebody can comfortably do. And I just try and remind people that this is an investment in their health over the long term. And I try to get them to identify other goals that they'll be more likely to be able to attain if they commit to... the the temporary increase in discomfort from becoming more active. So I emphasize that it will be temporary. But like, say, a mom who has small children and has been bedridden with pain or depression or both, you know, maybe a goal would be to walk her child to kindergarten. And if you're in so much pain that you can't bear to move, that's, that's a tough one. But the emotional um, balance of something like that can prompt somebody to breathe through the temporary surge in discomfort because they can visualize the reward that has greater value than avoiding discomfort.
0: Well, and also, this isn't specific to pain, but your your section on the risks of prolonged sitting with regards to premature death uh, was certainly a motivator for me when I read it. <laughs>
1: Um, I just imagine that as a health professional, you're quite active. I'm not buying (laughs) it.
0: I'm pretty active, but it's also, um, you know, like the little bit of extra movement that someone can do in terms of the amount that it will lower your risk of premature death is pretty remarkable.
1: Oh, Definitely. Um, I actually bought a really inexpensive, I think it was, I mean, comparatively expensive, it's like a $75 standing desk attachment, and when I'm not seeing people, if I'm doing paperwork, sometimes it's helpful just to, even for 20 minutes or a half an hour, to be standing, where if I'm on the phone like I am now, I might be pacing just to get a little bit of extra movement going, and you know, it's helpful for uh, circulation and for uh, general well-being. And, and little things count. Um, sometimes people will avoid activity because they think that they can't do anything that's really going to be worthwhile. And really, everything adds up.
0: And then do you have a first-line uh, thing that you, you reach for when when dealing with insomnia that's due to chronic pain?
1: So there are a few things. Um, again, mindfulness. There's data showing that it is helpful for insomnia, um, and, and also the distress related to insomnia, um, because we can get so attached to, oh my God, I only have five more hours left. How am I going to get enough sleep? And that just makes it more impossible to actually get any quality rest. Um, I actually really like binaural beats, which many of your listeners may not be familiar with, but it's a very, um, it's an inexpensive to free technology. There are, um, you know, recordings people can download from iTunes or free apps or low-cost apps, and basically binaural beats are um, a type of brain wave entrainment. So, basically, two different tones are played one in each ear. So you need to use headphones, and your brain hears the difference, the mathematical difference between the tones in terms of hertz, um, and whatever that. Difference is whatever it corresponds to in terms of the type of brainwave, it will actually help the brain move more into that predominant brainwave state. So, for example, somebody who has a hard time falling asleep might listen to theta brainwave um, binaural beats, and they're usually paired to music, or you could pair them to guided imagery, or ocean sounds, or pink noise. And basically, over the course of several minutes, your brain will go from a too kind of fast-paced active state to a more um, early sleep stage type of brainwave activity. Um,
0: Doctors, Dr. Stein, I'm sorry. just going to leap in because we're almost out of sure. time, and I wanted to give you a chance if you do have a website, do you have a website that you could point people to?
1: I do. It's www.DrTracyStein, and it's Tracy with an I. I have a Facebook page and Twitter. Um, I post a lot of health-related things on Twitter, if people would like to find that out. And actually, I have, uh, I think, a blog post on either Psychology Today or goodtherapy.org about binaural beats, so people can read more about that there.
0: Thanks for being on Health Watch today, Dr. Stein.
1: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.
0: We're talking today to clinical psychologist Dr. Tracy Stein about her latest book, The Everything Guide to Integrative Pain Management. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday morning radio zine.